worship with you and to open the Word of God this morning. We're going to be starting a new sermon series on Boaz. I know all of you are like, man, I've heard so many sermon series on Boaz. Like, we got to listen to another one about this guy? Really? Okay, raise your hand if you've heard a whole sermon series on Boaz. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, some people were like, <laughs> yeah, raise your hands and then laugh. You're not serious. Okay, no one here is... I was joking with Barb this week, but the only reason I wanted to do this sermon series is just because Boaz is a fun word to say, like giving serious thought to naming my first child that, like Boaz. Come here, Boaz. Melissa's like freaking out on the front row right now. All right, so anyway, we're looking at Boaz, and the reason that I believe that God has led us to this place is because Boaz paints an incredible picture of what faith looks like in the daily life of a person. We've been talking for 10 weeks as we walk through James about how our faith is to transform us, how our faith is to shape us, how our faith is to be proven out in us as we interact with others, as we approach different situations, as we plan how, what we're going to do tomorrow, what we're going to do the day after, about how we approach suffering, about how we approach what he has called us to do. And Boaz, I believe, is going to show us, as we go through just these next three weeks looking at him and his life, Boaz is going to show us what it looks like to allow your faith to infiltrate your daily life, not just be a Sunday faith, but to be an everyday faith. So we're looking this morning at Ruth chapter 2, and I'm going to, children's sermon took a little longer than I thought, so we're going to have to run through some of this, but Ruth chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 2, I believe, okay? So if you would stand with me as we read God's word, sorry, we're going to start in verse 3. Then we will begin to take our look here at Boaz and learn more about him. It says there in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Ruth, So she set out, she being Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elmelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord bless you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me, get, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given by, to, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. All right, let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and we're so thankful to be gathered together here in your house with your people. We're thankful, Lord, that you have a word for us today. And Lord, I would just ask this morning, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would take your word and that you would speak to our hearts so that we may be different when we walk out of this place than when we enter. Lord, that we may know that we have heard from you. Lord, I pray that you would take away from me my own ego. Lord, take away from me any agenda that I have. Take away from me any emotions, Lord, that I may try to put into this. But rather, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak your word, pure and clean, to the hearts of your people. Father, help us to see what daily faith looks like. Help us to understand that it's more than just once a week. It's more than just a checklist. But it needs to be a part of who we are. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many of you may not have heard of Boaz before, and for those of you that have, probably what comes to your mind is Kinsman Redeemer. Seems like most women's Bible studies that happen, somewhere in there, they introduce this character of Boaz, and they talk about Kinsman Redeemer. And then what happens is Boaz has become this romantical figure almost in the minds of church ladies. It's like, you know, this Ruth kind of becomes the chick flick of Bible stories, all right? And so, you know, you got this guy, Boaz, who rides in on his white horse, so there are no horses, and he scoops Ruth up, and he marries her, and everyone's happy ever after. But I love, as I've studied Boaz, to look at who this man is, to see his integrity, to see his honesty, to see his worthiness, as the Bible calls him. And that word there can be translated a lot of different ways, including the idea that he had proven himself in battle. This is a man's man. Boaz is amazing, and there's so much depth to him that we don't normally pick up as we just casually read across this story, which is what most of us do. But before we get into this passage and before we learn about more about Boaz, I want us just to take first a quick history lesson and look at the book of Ruth in totality and look at some of the context there. First, we, I want us to understand that the book of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. Judges, if you'll remember, is the book right before this, and this time period is marked by no centralized government. There's no king in Israel at this time. You'll remember Moses had led the, the Israelites out of Egypt. God had done some incredible things with him. They had walked right up to the promised land. Then Joshua had taken over. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They conquer all the people there. They take possession of this land that had been given to them by God so many years and years and decades and centuries beforehand. And they settle there. But when Joshua dies, no one takes over the leadership role. And we find Israel in a place where, that is described in Judges 21-25. If you just turn back one page, it's the last verse of the book. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is in no way 
a positive statement about the people of Israel at this time. What was happening was the Israelites were doing whatever they wanted to do and justifying it to themselves. It didn't matter if that involved robbery. It didn't matter if that involved violence. It didn't matter if that involved promiscuity. It didn't matter if that involved exploiting others for your own gain. Everyone was out for himself and, and, and would justify it however they could. This is the picture that is surrounding that I want us to remember as we look at the character of Boaz. Everyone else was doing what they could to benefit themselves and then enter into the picture Boaz. And I think it's going to open our eyes as we see him deal with integrity and honesty towards this lady. Second, I want us to remember that Ruth was a Moabite. You can look back in Deuteronomy 23, 3-4 if you want to. I'm not going to turn back there and read all of that right now. But the idea there is that God is speaking to Israel. And what he's telling them is, really, don't have anything to do with the Moabites. Stay away from them. Why would God tell them that? Well, the reason that God wanted to make sure that they were careful around the Moabites is because the Moabites had a history of trying to lead Israel down the wrong path. You guys remember the story of Balaam and his donkey where the guy's riding the donkey and the donkey sees this angel and like starts talking to Balaam, okay? Pretty crazy story. Balaam was on his way to curse Israel. He was hired by the Moabites to curse Israel so that the Moabites would be able to defeat them so Israel wouldn't cross through their land. That didn't work, so the Moabites tempted them. They, they sent women to them, they led them through false, to false idols, and they distracted them from their purpose. And so God said, be very careful with the Moabites. Okay, They were not to be a part of the general assembly. They were not to worship with the rest of Israel up until the 10th generation even. And so Ruth comes to Israel as a Moabite, as someone that they should be wary of, as someone that would have been looked down upon. She was a foreigner that people would have looked at with skepticism. So as we read through the book of Ruth, let's remember that we're dealing with a context where people are dealing with doing whatever they want to do and justifying it to themselves, and they look at foreigners with skepticism. Does this sound familiar at all? Does this sound like something we might be experiencing? Okay, Where we live in a culture where it says, get what's yours, do what you have to do for yourself, Gather as much as you can into your own storehouses. It doesn't matter if you have to take advantage of somebody else. You do what you need to do. And a place and a time when we look at people who are different than us with skepticism and even fear. Whether it be someone from another country or whether it be someone that's from the wrong side of the train tracks. Or whether it be from someone that just looks different than us. Lastly, I want us to see as we look through Ruth. I want you to to look for these things. We're not going to specifically pull them out over the next three weeks, but I want you to be looking at some of the overall themes of the book, which include kindness. We have the kindness of Ruth to Naomi, her mother-in-law. We have the kindness of of Boaz to Ruth. We have God's kindness towards everyone in the picture. We have the story of redemption, which Boaz is a huge part of, and we have the sovereignty of God. One of the cool things about Ruth, and you see this in Esther as well, is you don't see God overtly doing a whole lot. In other words, what I'm trying to say there is you don't see a crossing of the Red Sea. You don't see the dead raised to life. You don't see maybe a miracle per se happen. But what you see is the author and through the whole, by the Holy Spirit very skillfully saying things like she chanced upon the field of Boaz. 
Yeah, she can't. Okay, fantastic. Okay, or you think it's coincidence that this family is driven from their home by famine to Moab where they meet Ruth and then driven back by famine to their home where Ruth can meet Boaz. Yeah, that's just chance. Nothing, God wasn't doing anything with that. Or it's just chance that when Ruth needs to talk to Boaz one night that he goes away from everyone else and sleeps by himself. Yeah, that was just chance. But rather what we see is God throughout the book of Ruth using circumstances, both good and bad. We see God using the desires of those that are following him. We see him using mundane, every life choices to guide people towards his sovereign will for them. And ultimately what we're going to see is that as Ruth and Boaz come together in his sovereign plan, as he directs their paths towards one another, the eventual outcome of that on down the line is the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to us as we go through our daily lives, as we go through these mundane decisions that don't seem to mean much in in that moment, that everything must be submissive to God, that we must look for his leadership in every point because God is going to use those mundane decisions in our lives to impact the lives of everyone around us. We can't just stop and say, this isn't a big deal. Everything is under his control. Everything is under his will. And he uses all things for his glory and for his power. So I want you to keep those in mind as we go through this book to see the chances, the chance happenings that happen throughout the, the book of Ruth. And remember that nothing is by chance. All right, let's dig into our passage a little bit. First, this first week that we look at Boaz, I want us to see faith in people. I want us to see our daily faith and how this isn't just a checklist, but this is who we are. And I want us to see that in three ways through Boaz. First, our faith should be evident. It should be clear to those around us. Second, our faith should be expecting. Our faith should be active. It should be something that we get up in the morning and we think, man, so what's going to happen today? And the last thing we're going to look at is how our faith should be engaging, how it should be involving ourselves and how it should be involving those around us. All right, let's look first at our faith, a faith that is evident. We see here the very first time that Boaz speaks is there in verse 4. It says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reaper, said to those that were working for him, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Boaz's faith was evident in his speech. This is the only time that this, this greeting is recorded in the Old Testament. That being said, I don't know that we can base a ton of theology upon it. Kind of like if someone were to say, God bless you, we can't really base their theology based on them saying, I bless you to someone that sneezes. That has lost a lot of its meaning, okay? If someone says, I bless, God bless you, that doesn't mean that they're like a deacon in the church, okay? So I don't want to base too much on this greeting, but I do want us to see that throughout the passage, Boaz's speech indicates to others who he follows and what he believes. His actions are ingrained into his life. His faith is ingrained into who he is. And it's evident to anyone that approaches Boaz that this guy follows the Lord. And the question for us as we look at our daily lives, as we look at what's going on is, is our faith ingrained into who we are? Look at Matthew 5, or you can 
write it down and look at it later. Matthew 5, 16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we go through our days, we should be different in how we approach situations and how we approach bad traffic. Guilty there. Okay? And how we approach customer service people or telemarketers. How we approach difficult situations. How we approach PVC pipe that just won't seem to stay glued when you want it to. Okay? How do we approach those situations? Do people see and see our reactions to those everyday things and think, man, there's something different about that guy or that girl? Is your faith so ingrained in you that people look and they marvel at who you serve? Second, I want us to see Boaz's faith was ingrained in prayer. There in verse 12, we have a record of him saying to Ruth, the Lord repay you for all you've done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz there is praying over her. Okay, He's asking that the Lord may bless her in a special and unique way. But you know what I think is awesome about Boaz's prayer is that it is such a part of who he is. The Lord and communicating with him is that it comes across as natural speech. It comes across as just part of normal day conversation. Is that true in our lives? Are we so in tune with the Lord? Are we so in tune with who he is and where we are in perspective to him? That communication with him, prayer to him, is a natural part of who we are. I love the story of Nehemiah. You've probably heard me tell it before up here. But I love the part where he's before the king. He's at his job. He's before this powerful guy. He's the cupbearer. Okay? And the king looks at him and says, what is wrong with you? Why are you sad? What's going on? And Nehemiah says, I prayed. Nehemiah didn't run out of that room and find a closet somewhere and ask God for help in that moment. Nehemiah just very subtly, I believe in that moment, said, God, give me the words. And then he began to answer the king. And God gave him not only the words, but he gave him favor. Is that what happens when you're approached with a situation? Does your faith so ingrained in who you are that when you're faced with a, a decision, when you're faced with something difficult, that it naturally produces a desire to pray. I must confess, that is not always the truth with me. It doesn't always happen that way. This is the other thing that I've been really, I really felt convicted about this week, is when you have someone come to you and they're sharing your heart with you, you say, hey, I'll be praying for you. And then how many of us walk away and that never happened? You done that? Have you born false witness in that area? I have. I have to confess that. I've been very convicted about that this week, and I've been trying over, really, for, for several months now to really take the time and pray for that person. And for those of you that are here that I've said, hey, I'll be praying for you, don't think, oh, well, he hasn't been praying for me this whole time. We have, okay? Just calm down, okay? But I want us to see that point, that it can't just be a flippant thing to us. It's got to be ingrained in who we are so that we don't just say that, but we mean it, and then we do it. And when we have the opportunity that we take the time because it's so important that it becomes part of our natural speech so that we're constantly communicating with him. The last thing I want us to see under here, under this part about faith that is ingrained, 
is I want us to see how faith, his faith was evident, how his faith was ingrained in his approach. In Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, we have two verses that absolutely astound me. I love these two verses. We talked about them on Wednesday night. Let me read them to you really fast. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up unto its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyards. But you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Every time I read those two verses, I get something completely different out of them. I love that God here gives an order for us to help others. That he helps us to understand that everything that we've been given, every wage that we earn is a blessing from him and we're to hold it in open hands and say, Lord, whatever you want to do with it, do with it. I love what some of the some of the folks that were commenting on Wednesday night about this passage, they just opened my eyes to so many different things and we don't have time to really preach a sermon just on this passage. But what I want us to see this morning is that that was the law. That was the expectation. But Boaz approaches the law and he doesn't just see it as a checklist of do's and don'ts, but he approaches the law and he sees the very heart of it and he goes to the heart of the law and that's what he follows. Boaz doesn't simply say, hey boys, in each corner of my field, I want you to measure over six inches and leave anything that's behind that corner, and then I want you to leave the last row. I've done the law. But rather, Boaz sees the heart of the law. He understands that later in 19, it says, love others as you would, or treat others the way you would want to be treated. It's the golden rule. Christ says it again. James calls it the holy law. He says, understand there what's going on. And so Boaz sees Ruth, and he doesn't just do what's commanded of him, but he goes be above and beyond because he understands that God desires for us to show compassion and love to those that are in need. He, he does what James commands us to do later in the New Testament. So my question to you this morning, my question to you this morning is, do you approach this book, do you approach God's word to you as a checklist of do's and don'ts or do you approach it and see the heart of God and what he desires for us? That's the difference between a daily faith that works and a faith that only works on Sundays. A faith that only says, I just need to do the bare minimum. All right, so his faith was evident. His faith was ingrained. Boaz's faith was also expecting. Both Boaz's faith first was expecting to encounter. We see there in verse 5, as Boaz visits the field, Boaz then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of reapers, whose young woman is this? Boaz doesn't just come to his field and say, hey, how's everything going? How are my workers doing? Are you gathering in everything correctly? Am I going to make a lot of money this year? But rather, Boaz enters the field and he immediately picks up upon someone that's there that wasn't there before. He immediately picks up on that there's someone here that's in need. So many times we go through life and we just have blinders on, don't we? I've experienced that a little bit this week as I knew that I was going to be doing some stuff this weekend. And man, I was just like, man, I got to get this done and I got to get this done and I got to get this done. And I got to take care of what I need to take care of. And in the meantime, who knows what I was missing out here? Who knows what I was missing in the peripheral? 
Do you wake up in the morning and do you expect to encounter someone that day? Or do you go through life with blinders on saying, I just got to take care of what I need to take care of today? Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says, Then, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. John 4, 35 through 36 says something very familiar, except for there he says, lift up your eyes so that you may see the harvest. Do we, are we looking around us to find those individuals that God places in our life every day that he desires to, for us to share with them, maybe on a physical need? Maybe he desires for us to share on a spiritual need, to share with, uh, with them what God is doing in our lives. Or do we keep our blinders on and pretend like they're not there? Second thing with expecting is Boaz's faith was not only expecting to encounter, but Boaz's faith was expecting to act. Verse 12, again, he's praying over her. And we see in the verses immediately before that that Boaz didn't merely see Ruth and do nothing, but rather he jumps into action. He knows that which he has been commanded there in Leviticus 19. And Boaz, when he sees the need, he immediately begins to do something about it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you know this is the Great Commission. God has given us our marching orders. We're to go and to make disciples. We're not to sit back and to do nothing. So it's not enough for us to look out and say, oh, I see this person that they need Jesus. I, need, I see this person that they need help or assistance with a physical need with food or with groceries or maybe they need just someone to come and pray with them and be with them it's not it's not enough for us to see it we must act upon it and then lastly for boaz's faith was expecting to sacrifice i love there in 15 and 16 he's already told her hey don't worry about things you stay right here. There's no need for you to go anywhere else. No, no need to endanger yourself by roaming around, but rather just stay here in my field. But then in 15 and 16, after she had left to go back to work, Boaz instructs his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. She was to come right up where they were working, not to hang back so that she could have the best of the best. And then he further goes on and says there at the end of the verse, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Not only was he giving her, the, he wasn't just giving her the leftovers. He was giving to her from his own stash. Stuff that had already been picked up. Stuff that was already rightfully his. He was saying, hey, take it out and leave it for her. When God calls us to follow him, if we're going to experience a daily faith and we're going to experience the blessings that go with that, the joy that goes with that, then we must understand that it is going to cost us. But as we talked about with Leviticus 19, if we understand that it's all his anyway and we hold it open, asking for him to use it and to use us however he wishes, then that should not be a stretch for us. I love what one, somebody said about Leviticus 19 on Wednesday night. They said, you know, this doesn't talk about the tithe. This doesn't just talk about what we're commanded to do and, and a checklist. This is above and beyond. Are we ready to sacrifice? And that doesn't just mean money. That means our time. That means our emotions. That means our effort. 
means so much more than just our physical, tangible items that we own. And for some of us, that's harder to sacrifice than anything. It's harder sometimes for us to give up our time and our efforts rather than just to give a little bit of money. In fact, we would rather give more, much more, if that means we didn't have to go and do something. But Boaz here gives of what is his, and he expects that if he is going to follow the law, if he's going to have a daily faith, if he's going to live out the heart of the law, not just its checklist, that he must give more. Luke 14, 27 through 29 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him. As we follow Christ, do you understand that that means handing over to him what is already his, giving above and beyond of your time and of your efforts and even of your resources? All right, last thing. We see that our faith is ingrained. We see that our faith is expecting. And lastly, we see that our faith is engaged, engaging. Boaz's faith was first engaging to strangers, verse 8 through 9. Boaz sees Ruth and he begins to act upon it. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She was someone to be avoided. She was someone not to be made friends with. And yet, Boaz goes out of his way for this woman who is in desperate need of help. We're called to do the same. Matthew 25, 31 through 36, I'm not going to read it all. Many of you already know the passage. Jesus is sitting on his throne, and he's separating the sheep from the goats, believers from unbelievers. And he says, and this is Brian's paraphrase, he says, come in, to, come in with me. I know you because you have met the needs. You have fed me when I needed food. You have clothed me. You have visited me when I was in prison. And the people look back at him and say, when did we do that? And he says, when you did that for the least of these, you did it for me. We're expected to meet the needs. We're expected to engage those that we don't know. We're expected to engage those that don't look like us. We're expected to engage those that maybe even put fear into our hearts. And Boaz does that and provides us a great example of that. Next, Boaz's faith was engaging to himself. You can read back over that prayer there that he says, and he talks about the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward given to you by God under whose wings, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I love this prayer of Boaz because as Boaz is praying, as he's saying these things, he already knows that God is going to use him to be a tool to meet some of that prayer. Ruth and Naomi were in need of two things desperately when they came back to Israel. They were in need of food and they were in need of family. And Boaz is praying over and praying blessing upon Ruth in this moment, and he knows these needs, and he knows that at the very least he's going to be the tool that God uses to, pr to provide their food, to provide their well-being. And later on, we're going to see that he's also going to be the answer to the prayer for family and for protection. How many times do you pray like this, though? How many times do you pray and you say, God, I pray that you would meet that need, I pray that you would help that family right now. And But secretly in your mind, you're thinking, but let it be somebody else. How many times do you pray the prayer, Lord, I pray 
Please save that person. Please let them hear the gospel today so that they may come to know you. But in your, in your brain, in your mind, you think, but oh, please don't let it be me that has to go and tell them. Or you think, man, I, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to do that. Or how many times have you prayed for missionaries and you're like, God, please send someone to Africa. Please send someone to Nigeria or to Madagascar. Please send someone to Iraq or Iran. Please send someone to China or North Korea so that they may hear the gospel. But don't let it be me. Don't let it be my kid. And sure as all get out, don't let it be my grandkid. How many times do you pray that way? Or do you pray in such a way that you say, God, I know that this is your will. I know that this is your desire. I'm asking this for you to, to do something in this situation. Let me be a part of it. I expect to be a part of it. That's what daily faith looks like. That's faith that is active. That's faith that's engaging. That's faith that's transforming. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 there just says this it says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain we're to be doing what he commands us to do knowing that he's going to bless us and then finally boaz's faith was engaging to those around him boaz's faith was engaging to those young men he didn't simply take care of ruth on his own but he asked these young men that worked for him hey you make sure that she's taken care of you pull out from the bundles you make sure that no one harms her he was putting other people in places where they could also minister to her where they could see him not because boaz needed attention but they could see how boaz was treating her so that they may mirror that in their own lives titus 2 7 through 8 says show yourself in all respects to me a model of good works and in your teaching integrity show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may not be may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Timothy, First Timothy four twelve, felt probably a, a one that many of our youth know and many of our adults know as well. It says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Not only should our faith be engaging to strangers, should we be seeking them out? And interacting with them, not only should we expect ourselves to be tools as we go about our daily faith, but we should also be engaging those around us so that they may see what it looks like. I was thinking this week about engaging others and why this is so important. And I thought to myself, why do we not fast anymore? How many of you fast on a regular basis, meaning once a week or more? I would guess very, very few of us. Why? I believe, number one, it's because we don't see anybody doing it. We don't know what it means. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know why God commands us to do it. I remember the first time I fasted, I, I had a situation in my life, and I'm like, you know what? The Bible tells us to fast, so I'm going to fast. You know what I learned? Don't eat tomatoes after a three-day fast. That will mess you up. Nobody told me that. Nobody told me the basics. Nobody told me why I was fasting. Nobody told me why it was important. You want to know why I believe that we don't evangelize anymore? Because when was the last time you took somebody with you and said, hey, we're going to go talk to people about Christ? Never happens anymore. No one's ever seen anyone share a testimony. No one's ever seen us talk about what God's doing in our life. 
And so we don't do it because we're scared of it. We don't know what it's about. I, I see the generation above me and above them. And I, and I get to interact with you guys all the time. And I, I tell you what, I'm so thankful that I have the job that I have that during the day I can spend some time with you guys, whether it's setting up with the women's luncheon or whether it's doing food pantry or whatever it may be. I get to spend time with some of you. And I get to see God work through your life. And I also hear you say things like this. Man, I wish more young people would get involved in this. I agree. I wish more of us would get involved. But let me ask you this question. When's the last time that you called up a young person and said, hey, this is going to be a little bit harder for me because I do everything during the day, but this, at, this evening after you get off work or after you get done with your kids, will you come with me? And I want to show you how we do this. I want to show you what this looks like. They don't do it because they've never seen it. My generation doesn't know how to do some things because we've never seen it done. Will you be a part of that? Will you be a part of that? You must not only engage strangers, we must not only engage ourselves so that we're active about doing something, but we must be engaging our church members and others so that we can model what this faith looks like. It's why you're in this church. But you've got to be here to participate. Young people, before you think you're off the hook and you're like, yeah, these old people, what are they doing? You've got to engage as well. You've got to make it a priority. You've got to say, this is where I want to be. This is the family that I want to be a part of. Because I want a daily faith that means something, not just something that I do on the weekends. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. I'm just going to ask you three quick questions. We've already been here a long time. Sorry, the children's message took so long. That's what I'm blaming it on, not the sermon. Three quick questions if you want to just scroll all those up. First, is your faith ingrained? What would others say? If we went to those that you work with, if we went to those in the community and said, hey, what do you know about this person? What would be the first thing out of their mouth? What would be the first thing that they say? Second, is your faith expecting? Are you ready and willing? Are you walking around with blinders on your faith? Or are you actively seeking out and saying, hey, I identify that need and I'm going to do something about it? And then is your faith engaging? Are you interacting with others and expecting yourself to be part of the solution, part of what God's wanting to do. Boaz didn't go into that field and see Ruth and say, man, I hope somebody takes care of her and walk the other way. He didn't see a person in need of food, a person in need of family and say, I hope that happens, but I'm not the guy. But rather, Boaz stepped up and said, I'll do whatever God wants me to do. I'll meet the need that I can meet. And later on the line, he's going to step up and do his responsibility as a family member as he redeems her as well. Where are you in that? Where are you in that? This morning, I'm going to, as the praise team plays, I pray that you just respond. We're going to go back to something that I've said before. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I know he's not calling you to do nothing this morning. I know that there is some part of this message, some part of this word that he is talking to you about. What are you going to do with it? Or are you just going to walk out when, like James says, you're going to look in the mirror and say, oh, yeah, that is a problem. Eh, I'm not going to worry about it and walk the other direction. Or are you going to look into the scripture and say, yes, I need to address this. And are you going to deal with it today and allow him to deal with it today? Let me pray with you. And then you respond as the, as the band plays. Father, we just come before you this morning. Lord, I, 
Lord, I know, Lord, that we have gone through a lot of information very quickly, Lord, that there's a lot to unpack here in this passage about Boaz. Lord, and I I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be able to focus, Lord, that we would be able to pick out, Lord, that which you would have for us, Lord, that we would be able to, to glean just a little bit from it and that it would change who we are. Lord, help us not to be afraid to act this morning. Help us not be afraid to respond this morning. Lord, help us to step out in faith, Lord, and desire something that's daily affecting us and not something that just happens once in a while. Lord, be in this moment. We pray this in your name. Amen.